Our scripture reading comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians. We'll read chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Let's read God's good word together. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. What if you could start over with only the things that matter most? Author Greg McEwen tells the story of the birth of his first child, and leading up into that week, he was excited and couldn't wait, and he had a colleague who sent him an email and said, Friday afternoon from 1 to 2 would be a really bad time for your wife to have a baby. McEwen thought he was joking, but as the day went on that morning, his wife ended up having her baby, and so whenever the colleague texted to see whether he was going to be at the meeting, of course, what he answered is anyone would in that situation, yes. And somehow on the day his daughter was born, he left the hospital, went to a meeting, and then came back. And while he was at the meeting afterward, he was talking with his colleague, and his colleague said, the client will respect you for the decision you made today. Whenever he looked at the client, he could see from his face that he did not respect him more. In fact, he was wondering, what on earth are you doing here? The same question that McEwen himself was wondering. Sometimes whenever we get our priorities out of whack, we end up doing things that in hindsight seem almost crazy. We end up putting things in front of things like the birth of our children that we can't even believe that we would do. And it's so easy to get overwhelmed by the amazing amount of opportunities that we have, the different things that we can say yes to, that we can um, go into, and, and just the sheer number of things that we can be part of, and to say yes to so many things that we have no idea what we're doing. Sometimes those are good things, sometimes they're bad things, and yet we end up overwhelmed, distracted, and paying very little attention to the things that matter most. What if it could be different? What would it be like if you could start over with only the things that matter most? That's what we're going to be talking about today as we continue our Starting Over sermon series. And so here's where we've been over the last few weeks. First, Pastor Mark taught us that starting over is not leaving. Sometimes whenever we think we want a fresh start, we just think, you know, if I just leave and start over somewhere else, then everything will be better. That'll fix everything. The only problem with that is whenever we leave, there's one thing that stays the same, and it's us. And usually our problems are internal and we bring them with us. And so this is the wisdom from the ancient desert father, Father Anthony. He says, in whatever place you live, do not easily leave it because our problems go with it. They've known that ever since the third century whenever he was alive. And it's true for us today. And so instead of starting with just going someplace else and trying to get a completely fresh start, starting over starts with hope and God's good time. And we learned about the story of Israel, the people of Israel in exile. And we remember this verse sometimes during difficult times. Uh, It's a beautiful verse. I've had it framed in my house. Um, For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm to give you a future with hope. But sometimes we leave out the context of that. In fact, the verse just before that is this. 
For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And so to the people in exile, God promised deliverance, but only after 70 years. That's a really long time. There are a few things that I'm hopeful about that'll take place 70 years from now. I'd rather my hope come true a lot sooner than that. And yet it all happens in God's good time. And so it starts not with our situation or immediate deliverance, but faith in God and trust in God in God's good time. In week two, Pastor Mark taught us that starting over is not going back. It's not going to some idyllic time in our memory. We learned about the concept of rosy retrospection whenever we remember the past um, as better than it actually was at the time. And we have a tendency to think, you know, if I could just go back to that time, if I could just go back to high school or or to college or, or the first few years of my marriage, whatever that is, we think that if we go back, things would just be better. And that's not true. We gloss over the difficulties. We retrospect rosily and think about the past as better than it was. And and so instead, what we can do is whenever we're in trouble or afraid, focus not on the past, but on God. Focus on God and remember who God is and what God has promised us during those difficult times. Not looking at the past, but looking forward to the future with God. And and so this is what Moses told the people of Exodus whenever they were looking back and, and somehow thought that things were better in Egypt whenever they were slaves. This is what he told them. He said to the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. And so whenever we're starting over, whenever things are not going the way we want, we can stand firm and focus on God and not on our problems, not on the past. Last week, Pastor Mark taught us that starting over depends not on our own worthiness, but on God's grace, not on whether we deserve it or can earn it, but only on God's grace, on God's unmerited favor for us. And so whenever we're in those situations, when we really mess up, what we can do is we can be honest about the situation, about the damage that's been done, really acknowledge where we are, because until we acknowledge where we are, we can't move forward. And then in that place, to the very place we are, not where we want to be, that is where God's grace comes. And so this is what Dr. Henry Cloud says. He says, more than the absence of God's wrath, grace is also the presence of his favor, freely given to you. When God favors you or graces you, it means he is for you. God is on your side. And that's true whenever we're doing everything right, whenever we're being faithful, and it's true whenever we fall short. And we remembered the story of Peter and how he denied Jesus three times, and yet still Jesus came to him and invited him to follow him and even made him the first bishop of the church. And so we remembered that God's grace is available to us at all times, in all places, no matter what. And so this week we're starting over and an opportunity to eliminate distractions and focus on the essential, to get rid of the things that that just distract us from what's really important. And to do that, we're going to look at the story of Paul who started out as a persecutor of the church. And so we know Paul as the writer of, the New, of much of the New Testament. He wrote tw- um, over half of the 27 books of the New Testament are attributed to him. And he started churches all over the Mediterranean world. And, and yet he started from inauspicious beginnings. Whenever we meet Paul, he's sanctioning and giving approval to the killing of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. So this is what we read in the book of Acts. Then the crowd dragged him, being Stephen, out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. There he is. When they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
when he had said this, he died, and Saul approved of their killing him. That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. So not a great day for the church. One of their own is killed, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, and the one who, who oversaw it, who was giving his approval, who, who basically was the one sanctioning it, was a young man named Saul. Um, later, he's known as, as Paul. Um, some people think that's because he got a new name whenever Jesus uh, came into his life. Uh, really, the only difference is where he is whenever people are addressing him. And so um, Paul is just the Roman form of the Hebrew name Saul. Um, but we use those interchangeably. I'll refer to him as Paul just for simplicity. Um, but that's the first place that we meet him. We meet Paul um, as someone who's looking on with approval as a Christian is killed, as one of Jesus' followers is murdered by a crowd. And so that's where we find him. What we know um, about Paul is mostly what we can infer from things that are written elsewhere in the New Testament. One of the things that we know is that he was likely um, from a wealthy family and had an impressive pedigree. We know that Paul was a Roman citizen, and um, at that time to, um, to have grown up in the province of Cilicia, where he grew up, and to have bought... Uh, their citizenship would have been really expensive, more than a year's um, wage for a laborer. And so we know that they likely had some kind of wealth growing up. And they also had an impressive pedigree. And so this is how, uh, how he describes it in Philippians. He says, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. And so he, he just lists them off. He, he followed the law exactly. His parents followed the law exactly. He was circumcised on the eighth day as prescribed in the law. Um, he could trace his lineage back to the tribe of Benjamin, one of uh, Joseph's favorite sons, and um, a Hebrew born of Hebrews and, and a Pharisee, um, someone who followed the law and actually taught it. And so he had quite the lineage. Um, he had an impressive pedigree and would have attended school um, in Tarsus, would have probably had an education um, in, in Ro- Greco-Roman um, studies. And, and we know from his writings that he actually got a really um, impressive rhetorical and logical um, education. We can see him using um, many of the kinds of things that were taught in, in Roman schools at that time in his letters, the kinds of rhetoric and, um, and arguments that he makes. Um, but we also know that, that after that, likely after his earlier years, whenever he became um, what was considered young adult at that time, that Paul trained under Gamaliel, um, one of the most famous teachers of that time, and became a Pharisee. And so this is how Paul tells his story in the book of Acts. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, meaning Jerusalem, educated strictly according to our ancestral law, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. And, and so um, he was educated according to the law. He had both the Greco-Roman and the Hebrew education and um, was really well-educated and zealous, as he says. At a young age, Paul distinguished himself from his peers through his zeal. And, and again, um, as we kind of piece this together from the things that Luke and, and that Paul tell us in different places in Scripture, this is what he writes in the book of Galatians. Paul says, you've heard no doubt of my earlier life in Judaism. He's talking about before he became a follower of Jesus. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism 
beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. And so Paul was passionate about the traditions, about the law, and ensuring that others follow it. And so much so that he even persecuted the church. He, he was a rising star, someone who seemed like he was on track to be on the Sanhedrin, on the Jewish ruling council, and dedicated to demonstrating his faithfulness through persecuting the church. And as he said in a couple of places, he says, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so we see here what can happen whenever we get focused on things that are really not the most important thing. Now, he was so focused on proving himself, on demonstrating his zeal, that, that out, of, out of his passion for God's law, which says to love your neighbor as yourself, he began persecuting people so that he could demonstrate how faithful he was. Paul had lost his way. And so Jesus intervened. Jesus changed that, and it all happened on the Damascus Road. This is where Paul got to start over. And so he traveled to Damascus one day to arrest Christians there, to find people who were following Jesus, and then to, to arrest them and then bring them back to Jerusalem on charges. This is um, what it says. It says, Meanwhile Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And, and so he went out of his way to seek out the high priest and to ask permission to do this. This wasn't an assignment that was handed to him, but it was something that he sought out. So zealous and passionate was he uh, about persecuting the church. And, and so he got the letters and he went to, Jerusalem, or to Damascus. And on that day, on his way there, everything changed. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And so suddenly, as Saul was going along seeking to find more Christians so that he could, abuse, so that he could arrest, possibly even abuse, the very one Paul had been persecuting appeared and spoke to him. And as a result of their encounter, he became blind. And so he, he went into a house, his, uh, the people he was traveling with directed him to a house, and then God called a man named Ananias and told him to go to Saul so that he might tell him a message from the Lord about the work that, that God had for him. And Ananias was like, no way, like, I know this guy's reputation. I'm not trying to get killed today, so I will pass. And uh, eventually he gave in, though, and he went and he, he spoke God's message to Paul about how he would be the one who would bring the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles, to people who were outside the Jewish faith, and would invite them in. On that day, Paul was baptized, and because of Ananias' bravery, began to embark on the path that God had for him. And, and so this is what the scripture tells us about the things that happened after that. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked the name? 
And he has not come here for the purpose, has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And so suddenly this zeal that had been solely focused on persecuting the church um, was reversed and was actually used to help tell Jesus' story, to, to share the good news with the people and to let them know about the good news of Jesus. And in just three days, Paul went from persecuting Jesus' followers to proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. That's how powerful God's grace was for him, that this massive change happened in just a few minutes. And so after this, for Paul, starting over after meeting Jesus meant rearranging his entire life. Suddenly, he could no longer go on and keep persecuting um, the people who followed Jesus because he was one of them now. It wouldn't make any sense. And so he had to totally change everything. He had to start focusing on what really mattered. He had to start focusing on the essential. And, And there were difficult choices that came with that. Because by choosing to follow Jesus, Paul lost his credibility, his prestige, and his, his career prospects. He was on the fast track for leadership, seemed like he was destined to become a leader among his people, and in some ways already was. And all of a sudden, all of that was lost. By choosing to follow Jesus, he said goodbye to all of that. And, and I think that's important for us to note that whenever we do make those decisions to, to, to set aside things that, that either take us away from God or that don't help us go forward, there, there are consequences. There are things that we can lose. And so we have to go into that with open eyes. And yet what is gained is much more. And so this is what happened to, to Paul as he continued his ministry in Damascus. After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And so here's Paul. He's totally changed his life. He's totally turned it around. Instead of persecuting Christians, he's actively telling the story of Jesus and sharing about him. And all of the people who who he was working with now want to kill him. And so he comes to the disciples and they're like, I don't know about this guy. He could be faking it. That would be a great way to infiltrate. Let's not let him in. They, they were worried about it. Now, thankfully, Barnabas, um, whose name means son of encouragement, came and, and um, had Paul's back in it and was encouraging to him and, and helped him get in with the disciples. But, but it was a difficult road for him. He was rejected on one side, but still not welcome on the other because of his past. Uh, Paul tells about it like this. He says, um, after he had gone to, um, after he'd left Damascus, he says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. Then after three years I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and stay with him fifteen days, but I did not see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother. And so um, Paul had this, this... this time whenever he, he got to go to Jerusalem, but then had to leave and wasn't able to stay and ended up spending three years in, in Damascus and in Arabia. He went out into the desert, into the wilderness, likely as a time of prayer and kind of figuring things out in this new part of his life. But in total, after his conversion, Paul spent 14 years of, of relative obscurity in Arabia, in Damascus, and then later in Tarsus, where he went after his meeting 
in Jerusalem. And so he had spent all this time at the center of being important, having decisions made around him, being the leader of a movement, uh, albeit a, a negative movement that was focused on persecuting people. But now all of a sudden he faded into obscurity and, and it's not like he went from, from getting letters from the high priest to, to hanging out with the disciples. He got to hang out with Peter for a little bit, but then he went. And, and for maybe, we don't know the exact timeline, but maybe 10 years, maybe as many as 14 years, he was hanging out in Tarsus where he had grown up. It was in obscurity, had lost all the prestige, all of the prospects, all of the things that he had worked so hard for. This is how Adam Hamilton describes the situation that he found himself in. He says, The son who is destined for greatness, who was educated in the finest schools in Tarsus and Jerusalem, likely moved back in to his parents' house. If you've been in that situation, either, either receiving or, or moving yourself, that's, for most of us, that's not the situation that we want to be in, particularly after we've been out on our own for years. At, at this time, Paul's probably um, in his late 20s, pushing 30, and um, has been out on his own, has been living in Jerusalem, and has done really well for himself. But now, because of what's happened to him, because of, of the loss of all of his prospects, he's moving back in with mom and dad. That would have been really hard for him. And yet Paul endured these losses because he knew the most essential thing was knowing and following Christ. And all of those other things, the having a good name and being well-regarded and, and having future prospects, all of those things came far below that. This is how he describes it. He says, whatever gains I had, this is just after he's been talking about his pedigree, uh, about being circumcised, about being a Pharisee, being blameless with regard to the law. He says, yet yeah, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss. They're, they're negative on the balance sheet because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. Another way of translating that, translating that is through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Paul considered his power, his reputation, and even his safety as dung, that, that word that's translated as rubbish. That's, that's a really nice translation. Probably dung is a better one, maybe something even more, a little ruder than that. He can, but that's what he considered it, rubbish, dung, compared to knowing Christ. All of that stuff was just trash. It's stuff that could be thrown away compared to what was really the most important. And whenever we have that clarity about what matters most— it allows us to discern what is essential from what is just trash, from what really matters to what are just things that we've picked up along the way, things that we said yes to because we had the opportunity, and even things that actively harm people. In Paul's case, it led to violence against others. For many of us, we we see that today, maybe not in violence, but in the contempt that different groups have for each other. Certainly that's true in our political discourse. And yet if we know what's essential, what's essential for Christians, knowing and following Christ, we know there's no place for that. There's no place for contempt for followers of Jesus. And so we need that clarity, that same clarity that Paul has. This is how Greg McEwen describes it in his book, Essentialism. And it has one of my favorite subtitles, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. This is what he says. Only once you give yourself permission to stop trying to do it all, to stop saying yes to everyone— can you make your highest contribution towards the things that really matter? 
And after Paul encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road, after he spent time in Arabia and in Damascus praying about those things, he knew what mattered most and could make his own highest contribution. Now, it's not something that just happened instantly. Paul didn't instantly become a sensation and move down to Jerusalem and and become an apostle. That took time. And yet God called him and God used him. And, And because of him, the gospel spread throughout the world. And that can happen for us, too. Maybe not in the same way. Uh, There's only one Paul. God's not calling us to be someone that we're not. God's not calling us to be Paul as well. But whenever we eliminate the rest and focus on what matters most, on the essential, God can use us in ways that we just can't be used if we're saying yes to everything, if we've allowed all the clutter to get into the way. So how do we do that? How do we focus on the essential and eliminate the rest? Well, McEwen gives a helpful outline in his book. He he describes three steps for doing that. The first one is to explore, to actually take a look at your life and and to discern what matters most, to figure what that is, to figure out what that is, to to discern where your time and your resources are going, and then to, to figure out whether those things are aligned or not. To look at this is what matters most, This is where my resources are going. This is where I'm spending my time. This is what I'm giving attention. This is where I'm spending my money on. And then asking, are are these two things in alignment? Is there congruence here? Or am I saying one thing and living something completely different? And so that's what we do. First, we explore our lives and look and say, what really matters to me? And does that match my calendar and my checkbook? And whenever it comes to what really matters, Paul's told us what's most important. He talks about the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord, of knowing and following Jesus. We read that um, stated differently, but, but no less poignantly um, from Jesus himself restating um, the words from the law um, whenever he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he being Jesus, the scribe asked him, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first one is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so we ask ourselves, does my life line up with this? If, if what is most essential is loving God and loving my neighbor, how does my life actually line up with that? Do I say that God is my greatest priority, that God is what's most important in my life, and then find time to worship quarterly and uh, spend a few minutes a week in prayer? We can see that those things are not in congruence. If we say that loving our neighbor is most important to us, is, is number two, just right after number one, then we look and we see, am I spending time with the people God has put in my life? Am I spending time with my family? Am I making time for them? Am I giving them my attention? Am I making time for the people in my community? Am I helping people in need? Is there congruence there or am I just saying one thing and doing another? So the first step is to explore and we use the great commandment to to help us interpret how we're doing that. The second step is to eliminate. Once we identify the things that are not congruent, with what we say is most important to us. Um, sometimes those are things like, like for Paul, um, persecuting the church was a bad thing. Anytime we're committing violence against someone else, probably not a good way to love your neighbor. And so we can eliminate those things. For us today, whenever we find that we're acting in contempt, speaking in contempt toward other people, we can eliminate those things. Sometimes they're even things that are good on their own. They're things that, that are good, but, but because we've said yes to them, we can't say yes to something that's more important. That happens all the time with, with different activities, with 
with our jobs. They're good things in and of themselves, but because we've said yes to them, because we've said yes to, to so many things, we find ourselves unable to love the people around us. And so we recognize those things as we explore and identify them, and then we eliminate those things. And sometimes, as we saw in Paul's case, that can be painful, that can be difficult, and there can even be consequences because of it. But if we want to give our attention on the things that matter most, we have to eliminate the things that don't. The third step is to execute. After we've eliminated, then we can actually give our attention to the things that matter most. And he says we want to make it as effortless as possible to do so. So we create a plan to ensure that the essentials get our attention and that the distractions don't reassert themselves because distractions have a way of even whenever we've said, no, we're not going to do this anymore, of finding their way back in. And so how will we say yes to the things that matter most? If, if that's spending time with your kids for you, how will you actually make time for them? If that's spending time in prayer, when will you do that? And if you know there are these things that are going to get in your way, um, whether that's your phone ringing all the time or, or um, commitments at work or commitments in the community, whatever that is, how will you keep those from coming back and getting in the way again? We execute. And whenever we do that, we are able to make the first things the first things. We're able to give our attention to the essential and to actually pay attention to the things that matter most. Because so many of us are so overloaded, we've got so many things to do and so many commitments, and we've got to get from this activity to the next, and we told this person that we would do that, and so we've got to find time to do that, and maybe if we don't sleep, we can actually get it all done. And yet at the end of the day, we look and we think, have I really done anything that actually mattered? Have I cared for the people around me? Have I been faithful to God? Have I given God any of my time? We don't have to live that way. We can get rid of the things that don't matter, and even some of the good things that aren't the best, and focus on the essential, as Paul did, to give all of our, all of our best to what matters most, to what has the most surpassing value, knowing and following Christ, loving God, and loving our neighbors. We can do it. God gives us the power and the guidance to do it. And so here are the action steps for you this week that I want to challenge you to try. First, I want to challenge you to set aside one hour this week to reflect, to actually explore and discern whether your lifestyle and God's priorities are aligned, and really whether your lifestyle and your own priorities are aligned, or whether you say one thing and do another. We've got to take time. And so you might just like get out your phone and pull up your calendar and actually say when you're going to do that, because you have other priorities that are going to get in the way. Take that time. Spend an hour this week and just pray and reflect on what matters most and what's actually getting your attention. And then pick one thing from that that you're going to get rid of. Pick one thing, maybe maybe that's actual stuff, maybe your life has gotten cluttered, and get rid of that. Maybe that's a commitment that you've said yes to, an event you're planning to attend that is just too much, but pick one thing. Maybe you're going to give up hate scrolling on political feeds on the internet. That's a great thing to give up, by the way. But, but pick one thing and actually get rid of it. Actively eliminate something that is not contributing to the essential in your life. And then decide how you'll prioritize the essential in your life this week. How will you make time for the things that matter most? How will you give your attention? How will you give your resources? How will you actually give yourself to the things that matter most? so that you won't find yourself in a place like Paul where you are on the fast track and rising and and just you can barely keep up with your own progress, but you find that you're actively working against God, that you're hurting people to do it, that you're making the world 
a worse place. So that you don't find yourself about to witness the birth of your child and then have to leave that same day so that you can go to a meeting. So that you can say yes to God, so that you can say yes to the community, so you can say yes to people who are suffering. So you can say yes to the love of Jesus in your life and in the world. Now, whenever we're starting over, we're going into a new school year, and I don't know what starting over in your life. Maybe it just feels like another day. Maybe you've got kids in school. Maybe you're, you're a teacher and having to figure out another tough year ahead of you. Maybe you've got a big life change, a um, change of job, a divorce, any of those kinds of things. Maybe it's something great. Maybe it's something hard. Maybe you're not really sure what to make of it. Today we have the opportunity to start over. And the same Lord who appeared to Paul is appearing to us. The same one who called Paul to follow him is inviting us to say yes. He invites us to be a part of not just one more thing on top of everything else, but the thing that is more important, the most essential thing, and invites us to say yes and to follow. So say yes. Let's pray. God, you know that there are so many distractions in our lives, so many things vying for our attention, for our time, for our resources. There's so much noise. And God, we pray that you would cut through the noise. That as your son appeared to Paul on that day on the Damascus Road, that you would appear to us. That you would call us and invite us to let go of all of those other things and to say yes to you. To experience your love and grace and to share it with others. So that we don't miss out on the thing that is most important but attend to you and attend to your love and to be vessels of it so that others might experience it as well. We thank you for your son. We thank you that he taught us even how to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.